Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. If anything, a sense of self, a sense of destiny, the fact that she belonged among the greats was a defining mark of Artemisia's personality. In this episode, I speak with Sheila Barker about the 17th century Italian painter Artemisia Gentileschi. Artemisia Gentileschi was born in Rome in 1593 to a Tuscan painter named Orazio Gentileschi. Trained by her father, Artemisia was working as a professional artist by the time she was a teenager in an era when women artists rarely achieved success. In 1611, she was raped by the painter Agostino Tassi. Artemisia's father brought charges against Tassi. Although Tassi was found guilty, Artemisia's career was damaged, prompting her to leave Rome for the Medici court in Florence. Despite her many personal challenges, Artemisia produced several masterpieces in a dramatic naturalist style, working in Venice, Rome, and Naples. After a long and productive career, Artemisia died in Naples in 1656 of the plague. In 2021, the Getty Museum purchased Lucretia, a masterful painting by Artemisia, dated circa 1627, and even more recently published two books about the artist by Sheila Barker, the founding director of the Jane Fortune Research Program on Women Artists at the Medici Archive Project. I recently spoke with Sheila about the life and work of Artemisia. Well, Sheila, thank you for joining me on this podcast episode. Now, you start your book by stating that Artemisia Gentileschi was a female painter in 17th century Italy and that that was quite different from being a male painter then. How different was it? Radically different. She was growing up in a rigidly gendered society. Role models, behaviors, even speech, all of it had a gendered aspect to it. And for her to decide to become a painter meant stepping away from all of those options that were available to her as a young girl and having to choose to model herself after the male painter she knew. Rome at that time was a strongly masculinized community of painters. It was a very rough and tumble town. Caravaggio was one of the artists she and her father admired the most. He committed a murder. One of her father's closest friends was also involved in violent criminal activities. Her father and other male artists that he ran around with were very litigious, getting into brawls, writing scandalous, scurrilous poetry about each other. It was a competitive, harsh, violent world if you are a male painter in Rome. So yes, it, it was a radical uh, step away from the world of women that she would have been originally raised to belong to. Did much of that activity occur within the studio of her father? And was that what she witnessed most of it? I hope that that wasn't the case, but we know that her father owned music, which suggests that there was some sort of musical entertainment going on in the studio other than 
simply the painting. Besides having friends over perhaps for musical entertainments, he also had models, live models in the studio. We know from trial records later on that both father and daughter used the same live models in the studio. So there were certainly all kinds of people coming into their home, which also served as the studio for both father and daughter. Did it matter if one trained as a woman painter in Rome, as Artemisia did, or in Venice or Florence? Were there distinct regional differences? We're learning more and more about those differences in artistic training in the late 16th century, early 17th century, when Artemisia undertook her apprenticeship with her father. Rome stands apart from other cities in Italy because of its eclectic nature. It's really a melting pot for artists coming from all different parts of Italy as well as Europe due to the changeability of its patron class. Every time there was a new cardinal or a new pope coming into town, that was a new source of patronage that tended to favor artists of that pope's or cardinal's hometown. So there were lots of strangers and foreigners in the city, which meant that for Artemisia, Rome offered a panoply of artistic styles. Her father happened to have been trained in the Tuscan manner of painting, but he quickly gravitated to Caravaggio's style of painting with its Lombard influences. So, yes, uh, it meant a lot to be raised in Rome as a painter. Now, you set the stage for our meeting, Artemisia, by introducing us first to her female role models in Rome. Tell us about these role models. Well, only a few of them were painters. Uh, Lavinia Fontana was a Bolognese portrait painter primarily, but also religious history painter, who was invited to Rome between 1603 and 1604. She arrived there with a papal invitation and made a very impressive mark on her contemporaries with very prestigious altarpiece paintings for some of the basilicas of Rome. She was the first woman to have ever painted an altarpiece for a Roman church, in fact. In addition to Lavinia Fontana, um, there was another professional female woman artist there, Diana Scultori, an engraver. Uh, she had come there much earlier. Uh, she was no longer alive when Artemisia was a young girl, but her prints, her engravings were still in circulation. What's interesting about Lavinia and Diana Scultori is that both of them undertook nude imagery. Male or female? Both. Uh, in the case of Diana Scultori, these were primarily reproductive engravings, so she was reproducing nude artworks made by sculptors of antiquity or painters of modern times. But Lavinia Fontana was engaged in erotic imagery. I don't imagine that that was her signboard on the outside of her studio, but somehow Artemisia may have known that there was this woman artist when she was a child who was making these very scantily clad erotic 
nudes for some of the leading families of Rome. Now, you've mentioned Caravaggio and that he was a particular role model for both her father, Orazio, and uh, Artemisia herself. Why Caravaggio? What particular features of his paintings appealed to her and to her father? I would say on the basis of the kinds of paintings that Orazio, her father, and Artemisia herself were making in the first years of their contact with Caravaggio's style, is that they were most impressed by this illusion of reality, of immediate closeness to the action in the painting. They were also very alike in their imitation of Caravaggio's tendency to reduce the image to its most elemental human drama. He gets rid of the elaborate scenography. There's no need for perspective. There are hardly any accessories. It's a close-up focus on a few human beings and their struggles. Now, let's back up for a minute and talk about her life and her painting career up to the point of her confrontation with Agostino Tassi in her father's studio. What was her life like? Artemisia was motherless beginning at the age of 12. Her mother died in the course of childbirth when her third brother was born. And that's also about the time I gather from the scraps of evidence we have that she began in earnest studying art at her father's side. And of course, both of them at this time were under the spell of Caravaggio. So as her father was trying to relearn how to paint in this radically new style that involved a whole different set of techniques, Artemisia was learning how to paint for the first time in this radically new style. And in some ways she was running ahead by leaps and bounds while her father was having to unlearn before he learned. It must have been a lonely time for her. Later on in trial depositions, someone remarked that she had overheard Ordazio mentioning how lonely his daughter was and how he was concerned about that. She had three younger brothers. Occasionally she was under the care of a neighbor uh, woman, but she really seems to have had a restricted life closed in this house with the world of her father and his painterly activities at the center of her imagination. Now tell us about uh, Tassi's uh, confrontation with Artemisia, and by confrontation that they're being kind because it's often called a rape. And how unusual was it to bring Tassi to trial at the time and the role of Artemisia's father in that trial? Artemisia was raped when she was 17 years old. The question really wasn't whether a sexual act had occurred, but whether or not she was a virgin. That became the real issue at the trial. In fact, the case was all about whether or not she had been deflowered. That was something that could be challenged legally. And unfortunately, the typical way for a defendant to defend himself against such charges was to demonstrate that the victim was promiscuous or even that she had a reputation for promiscuity. So the trial involved a lot of 
witnesses slandering Artemisia's reputation simply in order to protect their friend, the defendant. And for this reason, rape trials were very rare. Nobody wanted to subject their wives, daughters, relatives to public defamation that was often a kind of theater of misogyny of the worst kind. But uh, this was probably Artemisia and Oratio's only recourse because the more typical reaction in a situation like this would have been to privately press the rapist to marry his victim. But it turned out that Agostino Tassi, when he raped Artemisia, was already married. His wife was in another place and he was not able to take that route. In other words, Artemisia and her father were forced into this most unfortunate and difficult situation. Agostino Tassi was found guilty of raping and deflowering a virgin. So Artemisia's testimony was believed. This led to a sentence of exile from Rome for a couple years. But it turns out later on that it wasn't really enforced to Artemisia's great horror and, and disappointment. No one often reads about the role of Artemisia's father in the trial, the defense of his daughter, as if that were uncommon. I feel that he was uh, defending the family honor. This was a grievance, not just against her, but against their status in Rome. And if his daughter hadn't been demonstrated to be a virgin, he would have been seen as running a brothel, essentially. <laughs> and horrible um, slander was launched against him as well during the trial. So it was a, a family enterprise to protect themselves. But now let's get back to Artemisia's paintings. Her earliest paintings were Susanna and the Elders and the Weenie Virgin of 1611. Describe the paintings for us. Both paintings demonstrate that she was something of a child prodigy. They were completed when she was 17, 18, and yet she is a full-fledged master. Many of the characteristics that will be steady characteristic of her art throughout her career are already visible. She has a command of her storytelling qualities. Uh, she admired the way Caravaggio could tell a story with great emotional power by focusing in on the human actors. And that's what we see. In Susanna, we have the story of a virtuous woman who is surprised and startled and, above all, fearful in the presence of two men that are this weighty presence hanging over her. She seems crushed by them in the composition. They're fully dressed. She's naked with her towel falling off her legs. If anything, this is a picture that dramatizes the vulnerability of a good, virtuous woman in the presence of two powerful men who are seeking to destroy her reputation if she does not give them sexual favors. It's a horrible predicament, and we are made to identify with Susanna, who is closest to us, 
and whose body is twisted almost towards us for protection. Unlike other painters who dealt with the story, there's no lovely garden, no greenery, no flowers, no cosmetics, no mirror, no trickling fountain. There's nothing to distract from the suffering and the discomfort of this poor victim. It would seem a, a, a very different kind of uh, painting, but in fact, the weaning Madonna of about the same time also shares a lot of similar characteristics. It too focuses in dispensing of all the accessory items and objects in order to tell us an intimate human story of a woman, an adult woman this time, who's offering protection and care and love to her male child, the baby Jesus. It's a curious moment in the relationship between these two because you can see from the image that he's well old enough to eat solid food and it's time for him to leave his mother's lap and be weaned and go off into the world. And yet both of them know that this is one step towards the suffering that he will endure as an adult. And so it's a very painful moment for them both. And yet Artemisia has depicted it with all of the familiar signs of domestic life that would have been typical of Roman mothers and Roman children of her time. So she makes this great dramatic religious history, one that ordinary people could identify with and understand in their own terms. She's really seeking to help us understand who these great religious figures were and how they behaved in ways that we could perhaps imitate and emulate. A year later, 1612, she leaves Rome and goes to Florence where she seeks patronage from the Medici court and others. Why did she do that and how does one seek patronage like that? Well, first of all, I believe that she had been hoping to go to the Florentine court since she was a small girl undertaking her artistic training. Her father's family was from Tuscany. Her grandfather had made a ducal crown for the first Grand Duke of Tuscany. So she probably felt that it was part of her family heritage. She had an uncle there. She had many relatives in Tuscany. And yet going there without her father was quite a risky undertaking. Staying in Rome after the rape trial would have made it difficult to have female patrons and any kind of serious patronage from maybe the religious elite, the church elite at the time. The slanders were too fresh in everyone's mind, perhaps. But in Tuscany, she could perhaps start over. And I believe that from the very beginning, her aim was to get patronage from the Grand Dukes. The way one did this is just as probably challenging as it would be today to aspire to get an, a role in a Hollywood film. How does one do that without connections? Well, 
you need an agent, right? And she needed an agent. And these, we call them cultural brokers now. These were individuals who uh, were in the circle of the court and made their own careers by bringing talented artists and musicians and scientists within uh, the patronage sphere of the heads of state. So in Artemisia's case, she was very strategic with friendships and also with her business that she could offer. When she made the purchase of silks for her wardrobe, she chose specifically a silk merchant who was one of these cultural brokers whose pastime as a musical composer and the patron of a musical camarata gave him special entree at the Medici court. She didn't pay her bill to this silk merchant right away. Uh, she owed him money. And so it was in his interest to find her a patron for her art so that she could earn the money uh, to repay him. And he may very well have been responsible, um, this silk merchant, for introducing Artemisia to the Grand Duke's patronage. She also made friends with other musicians or patrons of music, and this included Michelangelo Buonarroti Jr., the grandnephew of Michelangelo Buonarroti, the famous architect and sculptor and painter of the 16th century. Uh, Buonarroti Jr. was invited by Artemisia to be godfather to a child that sadly she miscarried. But in any case, this friendship that began as a kind of familial friendship, a very intimate one, uh, led to Buonarroti Jr. supporting Artemisia's artistic career and his efforts to put her in touch with other artists and intellects in the circle of the Medici. So, yeah, she was quite strategic in the network of relationships she created, and she knew what her ultimate aim was. Now, we described, uh, you described for us, the characteristics of the Roman paintings. How did her artistic style change when she moved to Florence? She continues to tell her stories with a few human protagonists, uh, but she amps up all of the qualities that made her art dramatic. The directional lighting that Caravaggio had introduced now becomes a very marked feature of her art. So she brings the lights down and really highlights her protagonist faces so we can see their emotions better. She brings us closer to their bodies uh, so that we begin to imagine ourselves in their mere presence so we could hear them if they were whispering even. She seems to be aware of what's going on in the musical world. At this time, the beginnings of opera are beginning to bubble forth in the Florentine theater and the development of a kind of musical solo that allows a protagonist to talk about what they're feeling with a single melody and a lot of force, which we call now an aria, this could explain 
Artemisia's interest in giving her characters the opportunity to freeze in their action and tell us what they are feeling and experiencing. She's interested now, though, in also appealing to the grandeur and the luxury of her Grand Ducal patrons. And so her characters are dressed in elegant fabrics. Some of these fabrics are based on the clothes she owned, (laughs) um, having spent a great deal of money on them. They hold swords and wear jewelry of the finest craftsmanship. And we see the most opulent version of Caravaggio's painting that I think was ever uh, dreamed up. So she takes Caravaggio's art from the urchins of the street and she puts it into the chambers of the prince. It's about this time that she enters the Academia del Disegno. What was the Academia like and what did it mean for her career to be introduced to that institution? We know that in earlier decades, the guild members had opportunities to pursue their profession by uh, taking classes in geometry and perspective, and also to benefit from drawing classes with a live model, and even on occasion to um, have anatomy lessons. In the period when Artemisia was a member, she becomes a member in 1616. It's not quite clear if any of that teaching is occurring, but there were advantages that she gained from being a member. One thing that I I noticed when going through the records is that by this time, they are allowing individuals from all different parts of Tuscany to join, but they are joining under their regional designations. So she was matriculated as a Pisan, as someone from the city of Pisa, far on the other side of Tuscany. And this is because her father had been born in Pisa. And what that means is not only that she was not seen as one of the primary Florentine artists, she was a bit of a outsider, but she shared that designation with Galileo. This meant that she had an excuse for talking to this older (laughs) and very famous by this time scientist or mathematician, Galileo Galilei. And we know that later on, they did, in fact, have a friendship over the years. So it was an opportunity for her to network and to make friends with dilettanti or amateur members of the academia who belong there as noblemen uh, interested in deepening their cultural life and partaking in this activity I mentioned before of being cultural brokers to the Medici, being bridges between the raw talent of the artist world and the court patronage that their nobility gave them access to. Now, she leaves Florence in 1620, and I think it's in your book where you describe it as under surprising circumstances. Explain those circumstances to us. It turns out that Artemisia was in a kind of a conflictual situation with her own father because of the marriage contract that had been signed when she married 
Pierantonio Stiatesi shortly after the conclusion of the rape trial in 1612. That marriage contract promised her an enormous dowry that should have made her a wealthy woman. And yet there was one stipulation that uh, was an issue, and that's that the money was not given to the couple immediately. It was given in two batches, first after three years and the rest after the eighth year of marriage. So that's precisely in 1620 when the rest of the dowry money was due to Artemisia, an enormous amount of money that would have been at least somewhere in the range of a million dollars today in terms of buying power and a very large sum of money that her father had to provide in cash for Artemisia to, according to the contract, spend in support of her uh, professional investments if she so wished. Again, highly unusual. But (laughs) the problem is that she and her husband had not been living together as a married couple since at least 1616. She had her own home. She was an independent legal entity and lawsuits were being filed against her, not her husband. And even her employees looked to her as patrona, as their lady boss, rather than to her husband. So there would have been good basis for Orazio to refuse to pay out the rest of that dowry. She ran out of Florence to Rome and hastily sent a message to the Grand Duke uh, telling him her reason for leaving Florence. (laughs) The great mistake she made was to not ask for leave, to not ask for a congedo in Italian, and to ignore the fact that as the protected artist of the Grand Duke by this time, she was really his favorite, she in essence served the Grand Duke and she was not supposed to have left his grand duchy without his explicit permission. So in doing so, in order to take care of family business, she really created a terrible situation for herself at the Grand Ducal Court and uh, found herself in disfavor with the Grand Duke and a persona non grata. And then she goes back to Rome, where she was early in her career, What is it like for her when she goes back to Rome? She goes back to Rome with her husband. And I can imagine that there was certainly still gossip about the trial. Agostino Tassi was there, her rapist. And this caught her by surprise. She thought that he would still be in exile, but he was back there working And, of course, her reputation had been somewhat sullied by the trial, even though the verdict was in her favor and should have removed all doubt about her. But I think she's trying in earnest now with her husband to hold up a facade of bourgeois normality, even though she is anything but normal uh, by the standards of those times. She takes an interest in the religious life of the city at this time. She is known to have lived close to the church of Santa Maria in Valicella. 
shortly after going back to Rome. And this is a church where a saint, Filippo Neri, had encouraged or had practiced mysticism of a sort and had really encouraged everyday people, especially the nobility of Rome, to get in touch with their piety and their their religious fervor to treat religion as not just simply the occupation of priests, but something that everyone should engage in strongly. And I see her taking interest in the city's new religious trends and um, maybe even trying to start over a new life. One thing that we should keep in mind is that she had five pregnancies during her seven years in Florence and four of those children perished in Florence. So when she came to Rome, she had one daughter. And I think that she began to kind of uh, settle down and focus on, again, finding patronage. Now, there's an extraordinary painting, I think, uh, coming up in 1623 to 25. It's Mary Magdalene in ecstasy. It has these refined silver tones of her clothes and the depiction of extreme and private passion. Tell us about that painting and what we know about its origin. That painting may, in fact, reflect some of her interest in these new religious movements in Rome centered around the Oratorian Church. The Magdalene is shown in a moment of ecstasy, of spiritual removal from her body and communion with the Godhead. It is an extreme challenge, I think, for her to take her artistic language at this time, which is so focused on the material reality of, of bodies and, and their presence, and to talk about something completely invisible, which is the spirit or the soul, and particularly how those two can be separated. So we see the Magdalene with complete optical perception. We understand every intricate fold of of her fabrics. We see the light catching all the modeling of her face. And yet we feel as if this woman who is so close to us is completely removed from us. She is in another dimension. Artemisia has really taken up this challenge of representing this new aspiration for the pious nobility of Rome and to treat it in Caravaggio's language. So this probably was done for this type of noble class or the cardinals who were supportive of the movement. In 1622, we have the canonization of Filippo Neri himself as well as St. Teresa of Avila, another uh, saint who had practiced these mystical ecstasies. So this, this is very much a depiction of the cultural moment of her times. Now, it's about the same time that she paints Lucretia, a painting showing the artist at the height of her expressive powers, depicting the ancient Roman heroine Lucretia, about to plunge a silver knife into her chest after being raped. This painting was only recently rediscovered and acquired by the Getty Museum. How important do you think it is as a painting? And Might there be other Artemisia paintings still to be discovered? Well, this Lucretia, in a lot of ways, draws its power from the same place that Mary Magdalene in Ecstasy does. 
we see an individual whose spiritual life is so strong, whose sense of self is so strong that it can even separate from the body, as in the case of the Magdalene. Um, and in the case of Lucretia, this self wants to determine her own destiny by destroying the body that it belongs to. This Lucretia chooses to commit suicide, which is a sin for the Catholic religion. And yet this Lucretia is being held up in Artemisia's painting as a heroine in terms of the political history to which it belongs, because Lucretia was raped by the son of a tyrant king who thought he would enjoy impunity and also who made threats to destroy the reputation of his victim if she were to talk. And yet this victim had the strength to take her story to the senators, the judges of her community, and to protest the iniquity that had occurred. And also not to put it just in a personal dimension, but in a political dimension and to challenge them to follow her courageous example in sacrificing her own body and for them to take up arms against these tyrant Etruscan kings. And this is the birth of the Roman Republic. So these are something typical of Artemisia's art. She's able to show us the strength of her heroes and heroines, especially her heroines. And what I love about this heroine is that she takes her left shoulder and moves it towards the knife. She is not going to passively destroy her body, but actively destroy her body and make herself into this spark that sets this conflagration of a desire for liberty and autonomy on the part of her whole people. It is an extremely important painting as the work of a woman artist uh, representing this subject matter at a time when the question of political liberty and dictatorship, tyranny were very, very timely, dangerous questions in uh, the European context. She does not shirk away from asking the difficult questions. And here she's posing the possibility that a woman can lead the opposition and the fight for freedom and liberty. So it's a, a wonderfully compelling painting. And since the discovery of this painting, there have been several Artemisia paintings that have reappeared. And uh, I have no doubt that we will continue to see more Artemisia paintings in the future. However, she never had a large workshop the way Rubens did. And so her paintings remain rare and few in number. And so while I am optimistic that more will, will be recognized and, and properly attributed to her, we're not talking about an unlimited number of paintings. We're talking about a very small number to begin with. Now, it's about this time that she meets up with a humanist and collector, Cassiano del Pozzo. What did that mean for her career? 
Castiano del Pozzo is a touchstone for culture, for science, for art. Nearly all of the great artists working in the circle of the Barberini are brought into the fold of the papal family through Cassiano. He is an amateur scientist and collector, deeply intellectually curious about the world from a scientific point of view, from an artistic point of view. He encourages Artemisia, no doubt, to make contacts with uh, some of the artists and uh, other virtuosi, curious individuals who are in the circle of the Barberini. At this time, she's coming into contact with Pietro della Valle, who had traveled all over the Middle East and done what we would consider proto-archaeological work and had studied ancient languages and uh, really gotten involved in the study of ancient religions as well. Uh, through Castano del Pozzo, uh, she's also meeting a lot of French artists and is embraced by Ranier de Monstier, Simone Vouet, who paints her portrait. Um, she's clearly celebrated by the artistic community. And with men like Pietro de la Valle, she raises her interest in poetry to new heights and begins even composing um, some sonnets of her own. So for her, Cassiano del Pozzo is kind of like a Bonarotti had been in Florence. He's a gatekeeper to the highest echelon of uh, creative expression and a place where there's a lot of cross-fertilization between different sectors of creativity, verbal, musical, scientific, and artistic. Now, in 1627, she goes on to Venice, and from Venice, she goes to Naples, and from there to London, where her father is painting, and then back to Naples, where she dies in 1634. Give us a sense of these, her last and late years. One of the most striking aspects of Artemisia's artistic development in her later decades is her deployment of a grand scale narrative. Some of her paintings become quite large where you have multiple figures, all life size. Uh, she wants her paintings to stand out on the walls of the noble palaces for which they were made. They are not going to sell for cheap. They are going to be expensive paintings. She begins for the first time in these later years to uh, follow the Venetian manner and to imitate, say, Veronese's more operatic and scenographic settings. Uh, there is more perspective in the floors and there's more architecture. She's beginning to use epic language to cast her poetic retelling of stories that everyone knew very well anyway. But it's this new epic language that gives them even greater power and princely importance. She's painting at this point for the wealthiest and most aggressive art collectors all across Europe. Uh, she has an international level of fame 
when she goes to England, uh, she's carrying out a kind of Catholic cultural mission, soft diplomacy, uh, to carry out a kind of pro-Roman bid to have a, a positive presence at the English court. And while she's there working at the court of Charles I, um, she's also coming into contact with Charles I's queen, Henrietta Maria, and Henrietta Maria's mother, Maria de' Medici from France, uh, is staying there at the time. Inigo Jones, the great architect, Giovanna Garzoni, uh, an artist that Artemisia met in Venice, is also in England at the time. And so Artemisia's network becomes a fully international network of players who are not only making artistic statements, but political statements. Now, she also is in England with her father. He had gone there uh, several decades earlier uh, to the court of Charles I as his painter. And this was the first time Artemisia managed to see her father since the early 1620s when they encountered each other, when they crossed paths in Rome. So it would have been an emotional time for her to uh, catch up with her father. He died within months of her arrival in London, and yet she stayed on another year. Uh, she painted many of her greatest masterpieces in these later years and becomes fully capable of making every element of her image count. The images have become more complex, as I've suggested, but uh, nothing is simply a stock element. Every accessory contributes to the poetic casting of her story and gives a new dimension to the emotional complexity and the conundrums and the challenges which her heroes and heroines are facing. As a professional, I think that she really held the esteem of her peers. She doesn't seem to have ever provoked the ire or distrust of fellow artists. They really did appreciate her. And the princes of all Europe found her incredibly charming. Her letters to her patrons, her princely patrons, show that she had Hutzpah, she had a willingness to speak her own mind. If anything, a sense of self, a sense of destiny, the fact that she belonged among the greats was a defining mark of Artemisia's personality, and she was driven to get there. Well, she had an extraordinary career, and we thank you, Sheila, for shedding a bright light on it and for your book about the artist published by the Getty and soon to be released in our series, Illuminating Women Artists, Renaissance and Baroque, and for your introduction of the lives of Artemisia Gentileschi in our series on the lives of the artists. Artemisia has an enduring place at the Getty, and we thank you, Sheila, for being part of it. Oh, my pleasure, Jim. I've really enjoyed this opportunity to speak with you about my favorite artist and to uh, talk about her life as well as her art. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman and Karen Fritchie, with audio production by Gideon Brower and mixing by Mike Dodge Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, 
composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003 and is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. And if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening.